Love Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be the authors of, well, the editors, actually, of the Drinking Diaries, Women Serve Their Stories Straight Up. This is Leah Odes Epstein and Karen Austin Gersberg. Uh, Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org, hamsnetwork.org slash book. Okay, our guests are here with us right now. We're going to bring them on. Uh, They're both here at the same time. So, Leah and Karen, how are you doing this evening? Great, thank you. Great, thanks. Okay, well, um, I want to start off uh, asking how you guys got together and how did you decide to work in collaboration. I'm going to let Leah start, and then Karen, you can jump in. Okay, well, we got together because we were actually living in the same neighborhood, and we became friends. Actually, we met on Halloween night. She came trick-or-treating at my door, and little did we know it would lead to a collaboration, a long-term collaboration, and I'll let Karen tell you a little bit more. Uh, Well, both of us are writers. Um, Leah writes uh, young adult nonfiction, and I'm a journalist, and in my personal life, um, a few years back, my mom started to drink um, heavily in her 60s. And she's from France. She had uh, been a, a casual drinker um, most of her life. And in her 60s, she started to self-medicate and was drinking more heavily. And I had never confronted that situation before. I didn't have relationships with anyone who had an alcohol problem. And I went to Leah because Leah's mom is a recovered alcoholic. So I would go and sit on her front porch and lament to her about my experiences. And Leah looked at me and said, you know, you really should go to Al-Anon. I'm going to take you to Al-Anon. But the truth is, it was more comfortable on her porch, and we never did go to Al-Anon. And after conversations, we we started asking ourselves, Where do women go if they want to share their stories like we're sharing with one another? Is there a forum where women can turn to express themselves and and unload, if you will, with no judgment and no shame? And we realized there really wasn't. Uh, So we decided to start a blog and to create that forum for women, and that's really how it started. Okay, Leah, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your story uh, with your mom and her relationship with uh, being in recovery? Yes, well, um, the story that I write about in the book is um, about uh, my dread of my birthday every year, which started when I was six, and she was an active alcoholic, and uh, she made me a, well, first she served a birthday cake that had rum in it, and she was uh, the first line of my essay says, at my sixth birthday party, my mother got drunk. So it was a tough story to tell, but it was I felt that, that that my feeling about my birthdays and the dread that happened from that first uh, birthday when I was six 
sort of encapsulated what it's like to be the daughter of an alcoholic and some of the feelings that are brought up. So that was kind of my my take. Okay. Now, since you guys mentioned uh, having a forum for women to talk about drinking, um, I hadn't even thought about this, but uh, there's a group that's a friend of our HAMS group. It's called Moderation Moms. It's a Yahoo group that's out there. We have a link to them from our website. And um, it's an interesting group. You know, I used to work for Moderation Management a long time ago, and I knew the founder of this group, and then uh, she kind of left the group. The the owner left it, and so I took over for a short period and then passed it on, and then they kicked all the men off. So I, I But I still... Poor men. But I still hear from uh, uh, the people that are currently running it now and then because um, they've been also involved in our HAMS Alcohol Harm Reduction Program. And I was just mentioning that in case there are women that are moms that are interested in a place to talk about changing their drinking habits, that's one place that they can go. Mm-hmm. Well, the other uh, place is to come to our blog, actually, which is just www.drinkingdiaries.com. And, um, you know, there's a place where... They can share their own stories as well as read a lot of other women's. And also our blog was sort of all-encompassing. Like we felt like alcoholics could go to AA. We were feeling a little left out, and then we felt that people who uh, had alcoholic parents could go to Al-Anon, but what about the rest of us, Uh, you know, the 64% of women, according to the latest Gallup poll, who drink and have all sorts of stories that range so greatly? Mm-hmm. And what is the format of your book? Um, how's this put together? Um, well, we have five sections because once we collected the stories and we also sort of shaped it, we decided to make five different sections. Um, part one is called Girlhood, and we have stories from childhood, including my own, that I was just speaking about. Part two is Relationships. And part three is culture. We have a lot of different interesting stories from different cultures. And part four is family. And the last part is called revelations, um, stories that kind of broke the mold and fell outside of the box and were very surprising, some of them. And one of the things that we were very focused on when choosing the essays that we were going to include um, in the book was to real to really have a lot of diversity, different voices, different experiences, different ages, different cultures, because we wanted it to speak to as many women as possible, and we we wanted some you know every woman to be able to to pick up the book and feel like there was something she could relate to. Now, uh, is your blog is your blog still taking new stories? Are there new stories coming up there all the time? Yes, well, we post, Karen and I post each, we each post once a week, and um, then we always do an interview on Wednesdays, but um, we are always open to, um, women can post their stories in the share your stories section that we have, and in the comments, they can comment on other people's posts, and sometimes we run essay um, essay series uh, as well, so we're, we're open to hearing people's stories um, all over the blog. Now, were the stories in the book already published on the blog, or are they different stories? They're all um, original essays that were written exclusively for the book. Okay. 
So everybody that wants to see these should go read the book. I, I read the whole book. It's really very interesting. There's a real wide range of different stories here. Um, are there any that stick out in your mind that you would like to talk about? Well, Leah, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, well, what really strikes me, I mean, I love all the essays, honestly, um, for each for a different reason, but I really love the sort of searing honesty in Katherine Harrison's essay, for example. She's a writer who I've always admired. She wrote a memoir called The Kiss, which I don't know if you read, but it's an incredible memoir. And she just has a talent for just cutting straight to the issue. And she talks about how much she loves drinking and how it helps her so much get to get over her social anxiety. But it, she came to a point where she needed to slow down her drinking and take some time, a time out. So she writes about that, but she's very, very honest about looking at herself. And I also loved um, Jane Friedman's essay, which was um, she talks about uh, her relationship to drinking and how it helps her see parts of herself that she might not otherwise have uncovered, her, what she calls her shadow self. So those are two that stood out for me. Um, Karen? Uh, well, one in particular, um, a story that, uh, an essay that was written by Ann Hood, um, I found to be kind of unusual because it was really a, a profile of her father and her father's love of beer and how that transmitted to her and how they shared it. Um, you know, she watched him drink as a child, but then as she got older, she learned, you know, she obtained her own appreciation, and it really became a bonding experience for them. And her father's no longer alive, and it's just it's a very loving tale, but the bond is really, you know, focused on beer. And I thought that was really unusual. And um, clearly out of the box and unusual is Jacqueline Machard's essay in which she, she has quite a few uh, teenage children, and she writes um, about how she would much rather them smoke pot than drink alcohol. And she kind of, you know, goes on this rant about why and backs it up with a lot of statistics. And um, it's, you know, it's it's a fun read. That was an interesting uh, story. We also, we talk about that on the HAMS website a little bit, the... the uh Use of marijuana as a substitute for alcohol, and for some people, it's really great. There's actually a lot of research that's, well, not a lot, but there is research that's being done by my colleague Amanda Ryman in Berkeley, who is uh, working with the dispensaries there and studying um, people that want to get off alcohol or other drugs, and they're using a marijuana substitution. And it's very successful for a lot of people, especially, I mean, people that have uh, bad withdrawals when they drink alcohol or if they have cirrhosis of the liver or if they get into fights when they drink. They don't have these problems when they uh, use uh, marijuana as a substitute. So, you know, we recommend this for a lot of people get medical marijuana. It doesn't work for everybody. Um, when I try to smoke marijuana, I get severely depressed immediately on smoking it. It's not a, it's not a proper drug of choice for me. Yeah. But a lot of people do find it works. Yeah, I mean, she she's not saying that she uh, would like to smoke because she's more saying, based on her background as the daughter of two alcoholics, she, she thinks the devastation is less from marijuana than from alcohol, but, you know, some would argue, but she makes a very good case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's obviously, you know, very personal. 
Oh, absolutely. But just it's it's true that some people find a lot less harm from marijuana than alcohol. But not necessarily everyone will find that to be the case. For me, it's just, you know, I get suicidal when I smoke that stuff. So. Wow. It's not for me, but uh, for <laughs> but for some people, it is a good thing. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, you mentioned earlier about Alcoholics Have Alcoholics Anonymous to go to, and I'd like to ask you about, do you think that there's a, a sharp category distinction? There are people that are alcoholics, people that are not alcoholics, and it's all clear-cut, or is it messy and muddy? What's your opinion? What, Leah, do you want to go first? Yeah, um, I think it's messy and muddy, but um, I never felt, for some reason, you know, I did go to an AA meeting or two with my mom when I was growing up to more to hear her share her story, but I didn't feel that I quite fit in there. Um, I didn't feel like it was for me. I felt like it was for people who had hit rock bottom and were you know, swearing off alcohol. So, um, but I, you know, it, it is messy and muddy because truthfully I would have been welcomed there and, you know, all these different, Al-Anon is very welcoming of different people. There are different degrees. Um, so, but I do feel that while it is messy and muddy, there have to be some distinctions made, right? I mean, I don't know, Karen, what do you what do you think? Well, I pro if you asked me, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would have felt like there was a clearer distinction. Um, but because of the changes in my you know, in my life, in my family, vis-a-vis -vis my mom, it opened up a whole new world, um, so to speak, and really made me start to question, you know, my own drinking and what it means to me. And um, and so now I really feel like there is less distinction. And I also feel like when, you know, when you ask anyone, you know, to scratch the surface, they have a story underneath. They have something that they want to that they that they can say that they but a lot of times they hold back they hold back because they're concerned about how it'll sound and you know I think that people that are closer to the issue um, and have been close to the issue perhaps in their past with family members or or friends or or partners you know they're they're more likely to share than than the other people. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, our take in our organization is, um, you know, you choose for yourself what fits you best. So people in our organization, they can choose a goal of being a safer drinker or of reducing their amounts or of quitting. And we say, we don't ask anybody to put a label on themselves, but we say, you know, what do you think is going to work best for you, you know, given your own individual lifestyle, your own individual social relations, you have a different job than other people, what works best? Does quitting completely work best for you? And, you know, sometimes people that choose to quit completely are not the people that have the huge alcohol problems, but they just decide this doesn't fit in my life anymore. Well, I actually decided in kind of celebration of the, the book's publication that I was going to be alcohol free for the month of September. Um and, you know, other than being pregnant, I really have not had, you know, that length of time um where I didn't consume any alcohol. I drink mostly wine. And it was very it was a very interesting experiment for me to go the month and um it was refreshing. It really made me very mindful about the reasons that I may choose to drink and I learned a lot about 
uh, about my my behaviors and myself and how it affects me. And I actually wrote about it last week on our blog because it really, you know, it was really it was really eye opening. It really is. Um, it's one of the things. Uh, it's one of our recommended uh, seventeen elements in our program is actually to do an alcohol-free period. Um, and 30 days is a pretty common one that people choose. Uh, they're not, you know, restricted to 30. If you want to do a week off, if you want to do two days off, if you haven't had a day off in years, that's good too. Or if you want to do three months off, those are all good. But a lot of people take a month off. They think it's a, that's a reasonable time to take off. And they report it's a huge learning experience. Absolutely. For me, I, I more have a contract with myself of what I feel comfortable with as the daughter of an alcoholic. I feel more. I don't feel comfortable. I have some friends who can sip a glass of wine every night when they're making dinner, and if I did that, I would feel like I was becoming an alcoholic. So I had to sort of, you know, define my own relationship to alcohol. So it is true. It is very individual. Everybody has to do it for themselves. That's what I feel. So, Leah, do you have a drinking plan? Would you say you have a plan? I kind of do. I mean, my well, it's very loose, and I haven't written it down, but my plan is basically that I I generally don't drink alone in the house. I, I generally drink with friends or out with my husband when we have date night. Um, and I at this point, I usually try to stick to about two glasses of wine, but I sometimes go over that if I'm having a big meal. Or But I don't feel comfortable really drinking alone in the house or drinking every night. So that's pretty much my contract. Mm-hmm. How about you, Karen? Well, you know, as I've said it, for me, I feel like it's been this very changing um, period in my life vis-a-vis the drinking, um, where I grew up, you know, this very carefree attitude. Both of my parents are European. There was always a bottle of wine on the dinner table, and it was always enjoyed and celebrated. So it wasn't until, you know, I was like 40 that that changed for my mom. And, you know, it really did impact me. I'm the mother of three children, and I I started thinking to myself, you know, I don't ever want to self-medicate with alcohol like I'm watching my mom do, and and how do I how do I make that not happen? And so... You know, over the last few years, I I decided that first my husband and I kind of made a pact that we would never drink on Mondays. And um, so, you know, of course we decided that vacations, you know, all bets were off on vacation, but that we just were not going to have anything ever on a Monday. And when I say, you know, we drink, you know, we have a glass of wine with dinner or something like that. Um, But then I started feeling, well, you know, it doesn't have to just be Monday. Like, we don't need to really, or I don't really feel like I need to drink every night. I want uh, every other night than Monday. I want my children to see us sitting at the table. Maybe some nights there's wine on the table and some nights there's water or lemonade. And I just I just feel like I want them to see a balance and the moderation and that it's not a necessity. And so that's the direction that I've been moving in and, you know, both pr- trying to really reassure myself that I'm, you know, in control and also to model something that I feel is healthy for my children. 
Okay, that sounds good. I'm going to share my drinking plan, too, um, which I've written about before. But uh, my plan is abstinence from alcohol at least five days out of the week. So I will drink one to two nights out of the week. And I like to drink at home while I'm watching my movies and drink to intoxication. So I will drink a fifth of whiskey when I drink. But I don't drink ever on a work night and never more than uh, two nights in a week. And so I put some real strict limitations because I used to, you know, be a real... I used to drink that much four nights out of the week and go to work hungover and other things. But it, it worked for me. Uh-huh. And, yeah, I know there's some people in AA out there that are shaking their heads and saying, no, that doesn't work, but I've been doing it for 10 years now. So yeah. everybody's different. Well, yeah, yeah, that's There's exactly a lot of right. They do, but everybody comes, you know, everybody comes to the table with different experiences and different feelings, and you know that's why I mentioned how, you know, and the my essay in in the book is really about this kind of metamorphosis that I've had over you know my forty eight years um, from you know never never thinking twice about enjoying wine on a daily basis to really, really, you know, trying to be moderate and mindful. Mm-hmm. Leah, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, the big takeaway for us in uh, after working on this blog for three years and the book, at least I'll speak for myself, but the big takeaway for me has been that if you're, you know, it's just like eating or anything else is you have to be conscious about it and it could easily become, anything can easily become a habit and a habit something that you just repeat in a loop and you just do endlessly without thinking about it. And that's where you sort of can get in a zone that's not maybe as good for you as where it becomes more conscious. Okay. Let's, I'm going to take another tack now. Um, do you think that attitudes about women and alcohol have changed society's attitude? You want to go first, Karen? Sure. Um, yes. Well, I think yes and no. I mean, in in, in our view and what we've written about on the blog, we feel that, you know, the, the, the way that women's relationship with alcohol is kind of treated is it's often like demonized and there's a lot of shame attached to it. And this comes in great measure from the media, um, you know, when there's when there's a female actress in Hollywood, you know, who has a drunk night or, you know, has done something stupid because she was drunk, you know, it's it's all over the tabloids, it's all over the press. And, you know, it, it, it ends up being a real badge of shame where, you know, for men it may be reported, but it goes away a lot faster. And, you know, so that, that seems to be a recurrent theme. And I think that, you know, there was a blip in time where Sex and the City, you know, and you know, Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker and all her friends on the show, you know, they really celebrated life with lots of cosmopolitans and that kind of spurred a whole, you know, trend to drink out with your friends. You know, that maybe turned things a bit and, and made people see that, you know, it can be, it's okay to be celebratory and to share those moments. But, you know, then there are tragedies that happen and there was um, the Diana Schuler incident, uh, the woman who drove the wrong way on the Taconic Parkway and, you know, killed 
herself and seven other people and you know it 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 brings it all back into focus again and and about women you know women 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 um when alcohol is involved so you know i think that it that it is a problem and it's not the only you know gender specific problem you know male versus female but i think when it comes to alcohol it it holds true leah what what would you like to add to that yeah, I just think with, um, for instance, if you're looking at um, the media and uh, movie stars, if you're looking at someone like Colin Farrell, who's a known, you know, big boozer, there's a there's a kind of macho bravado thing there. Even, you know, Mel Gibson took it a little too far, you know, but even he had uh, for a long time a swagger about him, whereas, you know, Lindsay Lohan or someone like that, they're, they're just viewed as pathetic uh, instantly by the media. And um, there's just a different view of it, um, of the same behaviors, basically. So uh, that's something that I don't think has changed so much. So do you think we're swinging back? I mean, in the 1950s, uh, women basically couldn't walk into a bar. No, I don't think we're swinging back. I think women are still, you know, that's... We've moved forward, and I mean, I don't know if you call it forward, but we moved to a different space where women felt welcome in bars and all that. I don't think that's going to change, but I do think that the feelings that women have inside and the perception of a woman drinker, um, I think it was Daphne Merkin when we were speaking at the Strand at our book launch, she said, you know, a woman alone in the bar has a bit of an air of desperation about her. It's it's a very deep-rooted emotional association that is very hard to make it go away. Which is contrary to a man sitting alone in a bar, which is not so surprising or doesn't provoke the same kind of emotion. Right, you think who ditched her or why is she alone or what's she doing, drowning her sorrows, and you might think the man is, you know, it's just a different perception. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the the attitudes of, of women themselves, have their attitudes toward alcohol changed? I th- you know, I think there there are different moments in time. I think you know there was the cocktail mom moment, uh, the Sex and the City moment, the you know, the kind of women girls night out moment. But you know, yes, from way back when when women were sort of not supposed to drink. I mean, my mother tells of her. My mother grew up in Sweden, which is another culture, but she said that the women really didn't drink there, and the men drank. So there's some cultures depending, uh, and depends on the religion, the culture. Uh, sometimes, you know, in the Jewish religion, women have always sort of imbibed alongside the men at the dinner table. Uh, Karen? You know, my mom, uh, as I mentioned, is from France, and she used to tell me that when, she, you know, back in the 70s, she would come home from work. My my parents had a business, so they both worked together, and she had these American friends, and she kind of corrupted them, you know, to have a late afternoon glass of wine. And they, you know, they thought it was crazy. You know, they were like, oh, my goodness. But, you know, so clearly, you know, the attitudes towards alcohol have changed. I don't think, you know, women would respond that way, you know, today. I don't think... You know, if somebody was over someone's house with their kids and it was, you know, 5 o'clock and they said, want to have a glass of wine? You know, I don't think anybody would be so shocked and need to be, you know, corrupted. Um, So I think, you know, it has changed. I think 
women have come a long way, and I think, you know, some women like to be doing shots and sipping scotch, you know, um, nowadays, where I don't think that that happened, you know, 30 years ago. One interesting fact that's popping into my mind right now, when we go back to the turn of the century, um, not the most recent one, but uh, to the the 1890s, early 1900s, um, it was actually quite common for women to be using a lot of opiates in the form of patent medicines, and it was actually much more acceptable for women to be using opiates than for them to be drinking alcohol. Was that because they were, you know, that was done privately? Um, I think it was done privately at home. But also, I mean, in 1890, a woman could not go into a saloon unless she was a prostitute. Right, right. right. So she had no no choice. But opiates were quite acceptable because they were just patent medicines and nobody thought there was anything wrong with them. Well, it's also the the housewife of the fifties with the Valium and the pills. There's you know right. there's a lot more. I'm not going to say acceptance, but there was more widespread use of pills that somehow that was okay for an anxious woman to use rather than sitting in a bar alone. You know, you get the Mrs. Robinson effect, the desperate housewife. <laughs> Okay. Uh what do you what are your guys' plans for the future? Are you gonna continue you're continuing the Drinking Diaries blog, I assume, but you ha- are you planning any writing projects? Uh you wanna go first, Leah? Yeah, um well I have been talking to Karen about maybe us doing a teenage drinking diaries of some sort. I'm very interested since I write young adult literature in um hearing from teenagers in particular and hearing their drinking stories that was a little bit of a sticky subject because of the drinking age and the taboos but um, we all know that teens are drinking and it'd be good to hear from them. I'm not sure what form that project will take but that's what I'm thinking of and Karen has some other additional thoughts. So, Well, I, I um, as I mentioned before, I'm a journalist and I write pieces about education and travel and uh, women's issues so I'm going to, you know, go back to writing some of my articles and, um, you know, we'll continue working on the blog together. And as far as the next step, you know, in terms of drinking diaries, you know, I I think it really remains to be seen. But we're really excited to have this book out because we really feel like it, it could be helpful for people to open up and, you know, particularly women about their drinking. Okay, I think we can wrap things up now. I want to thank you very much, Leah and Karen, for being our guests on the show tonight. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. And everyone, come back next week. Our guest will be Cindy Etler. She is the author of Straightling, which is a memoir of uh, teenage rehab in Straight Incorporated, which was one of the old teenage torture camps which has since been shut down, although its spinoffs are still functioning in the U.S., and we're going to have a little expose of some of these treatments that uh, no one should have ever gone through in their life. And we will see you all then, so thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night. Good night. Thanks.